Well, hello. I decided I should um, read out the rest of looking back on the Spanish War. Uh, there's not too much left. I didn't want to leave it too long before I finished off uh, that reading. So um, <clears throat> I shall just uh, continue where we left off um, for more context and such. Uh, see part one. So part five of, part by part one, I mean part one of my reading, my last Substack post. When I say part five here, I mean part five of the essay, of Orwell's essay. So part five. The backbone of the resistance against Franco was the Spanish working class, especially the urban trade union members. In the long run, it is important to remember that it is only in the long run the working class remains the most reliable enemy of fascism, simply because the working class stands to gain most by a decent reconstruction of society. Unlike other classes or categories, it can't be permanently bribed. To say this is not to idealise the working class. In the long struggle that has followed the Russian Revolution, it is the manual workers who have been defeated, and it is impossible not to feel that it was their own fault. Time after time, in country after country, the organised working class movements have been crushed by open illegal violence and their comrades abroad, linked to them in theoretical solidarity, have simply looked on and done nothing. And underneath this secret cause of many betrayals has lain the fact that between white and coloured workers there is not even lip service to solidarity. Who can believe in the class-conscious international proletariat after the events of the past ten years? To the British working class, the massacre of their comrades in Vienna, Berlin, Madrid, or wherever it might be, seemed less interesting and less important than yesterday's football match. Yet this does not alter the fact that the working class will go on struggling against fascism after the others have caved in. One feature of the Nazi conquest of France was the astonishing defections among the intelligentsia, including some of the left-wing political intelligentsia. The intelligentsia are the people who squeal loudest against fascism, and yet a respectable proportion of them claps into defeatism when the pinch comes. They are far-sighted enough to see the odds against them, and moreover they can be bribed, for it is evident that the Nazis think it worthwhile to bribe intellectuals. With the working class, it is the other way about. Too ignorant to see through the trick that is being played on them, they easily swallow the promises of fascism, yet sooner or later they always take up the struggle again. They must do so, because in their own bodies they always discover that the promises of fascism cannot be fulfilled. To win over the working class permanently, the fascists would have to raise the general standard of living, which they are unable and probably unwilling to do. The struggle of the working class is like the growth of a plant. The plant is blind and stupid, but it knows enough to keep pushing upwards towards the light, and it will do this in the face of endless discouragements. What are the workers struggling for? Simply for the decent life which they are more and more aware is now technically possible. Their consciousness of this aim ebbs and flows. In Spain, for a while, People were acting consciously, moving towards a goal which they wanted to reach and believed they could reach. It accounted for the curiously buoyant feeling that life and government Spain had during the early months of the war. 
The common people knew in their bones that the Republic was their friend and Franco was their enemy. They knew that they were in the right because they were fighting for something which the world owed them and was able to give them. One has to remember this to see the Spanish War in its true perspective. When one thinks of the cruelty, squalor and futility of war, and in this particular case of the intrigues, the persecutions, the lies and the misunderstandings, there is always the temptation to say, one side is as bad as the other, I am neutral. In practice, however, one cannot be neutral, and there is hardly such a thing as a war in which it makes no difference who wins. Nearly always one side stands more or less for progress, the other side more or less for reaction. The hatred which the Spanish Republic excited in millionaires, dukes, cardinals, playboys, blimps and whatnot would in itself be enough to show one how the land lay. In essence, it was a class war. If it had been won, the cause of the common people everywhere would have been strengthened. It was lost, and the dividend drawers all over the world rubbed their hands. That was the real issue. All else was froth on its surface. Part 6 The outcome of the Spanish War was settled in London, Paris, Rome, Berlin, at any rate not in Spain. After the summer of 1937, those with eyes in their heads realised that the government could not win the war unless there was some profound change in the international setup, and in deciding to fight on, Negrin and the others may have been partly influenced by the expectation that the World War, which actually broke out in 1939, was coming in 1938. The much publicised disunity on the government side was not a main cause of defeat. The government militias were hurriedly raised, alarmed and unimaginative in their military outlook, but they would have been the same if complete political agreement had existed from the start. At the outbreak of war, The average Spanish factory worker did not even know how to fire a rifle. There had never been universal conscription in Spain. And the traditional pacifism of the left was a great handicap. The thousands of foreigners who served in Spain made good infantry, but there were very few experts of any kind among them. The Trotskyist thesis that the war could have been won if the revolution had not been sabotaged was probably false. To nationalise factories, demolish churches and issue revolutionary manifestos would not have made the armies more efficient. The fascists won because they were the stronger. They had modern arms and the others hadn't. No political strategy could offset that. The most baffling thing thing in the Spanish War was the behaviour of the great powers. The war was actually won for Franco by the Germans and Italians whose motives were obvious enough. The motives of France and Britain are less easy to understand. In 1936, it was clear to everyone that if Britain would only help the Spanish government, even to the extent of a few million pounds worth of arms, Franco would collapse and German strategy would be severely dislocated. By that time, one did not need to be a clairvoyant to foresee the war between Britain and Germany was coming. One could even foretell within a year or two when it would come. Yet in the most mean, cowardly, hypocritical way, The British ruling class did all they could to hand Spain over to Franco and the Nazis. Why? Because they were pro-fascist, was the obvious answer. Undoubtedly they were, and yet when it came to the final showdown they chose to stand up to Germany. It is still very uncertain what plan they acted on in backing Franco, and they may have had no clear plan at all. 
Whether the British ruling class are wicked or merely stupid is one of the most difficult questions of our time, and at certain moments a very important question. As to the Russians, their motives in the Spanish War are completely inscrutable. Did they, as the Pinks believed, intervene in Spain in order to defend democracy and thwart the Nazis? Then why did they intervene on such a niggardly scale and finally leave Spain in the lurch? Or did they, as the Catholics maintained, intervene in order to foster revolution in Spain? Then why did they do all in their power to crush the Spanish revolutionary movements, defend private property and hand power to the middle class as against the working class? Or did they, as the Trotskyists suggested, intervene simply in order to prevent a Spanish revolution? Then why not have backed Franco? Indeed, their actions are most easily explained if one assumes that they were acting on several contradictory motives. I believe that in the future we shall come to feel that Stalin's foreign policy, instead of being so diabolically clever as it's claimed to be, has been merely opportunistic and stupid. But at any rate, the Spanish Civil War demonstrated that the Nazis knew what they were doing and their opponents did not. The war was fought at a low technical level and its major strategy was very simple. That side which had arms would win. The Nazis and the Italians gave arms to their Spanish fascist friends and the Western democracies and the Russians didn't give arms to those who should have been their friends. So the Spanish Republic perished, having gained what no republic missed. But there it was right, as all left-wingers in other countries undoubtedly did, to encourage the Spaniards to go on fighting when they could not win is a question hard to answer. I myself think it was right, because I believe that it is better, even from the point of view of survival, to fight and be conquered than to surrender without fighting. The effects on the grand strategy of the struggle against fascism cannot be assessed yet. The ragged, weaponless armies of the Republic held out for two and a half years, which was undoubtedly longer than their enemies expected. But whether that dislocated the fascist timetable, or whether, on the other hand, it merely postponed the major war and gave the Nazis extra time to get their war machine into trim, is still uncertain. Part 7 I never think of the Spanish War without two memories coming into my mind. One is of the hospital ward at Lerida, and the rather sad voices of the wounded militiamen singing some song with a refrain that ended, Una resolución, luchar hasta el fin. Well, they fought to the end, all right. For the last 18 months of the war, the Republican armies must have been fighting almost without cigarettes and with precious little food. Even when I left Spain in the middle of 1937, Meat and bread were scarce, tobacco a rarity, coffee and sugar almost unobtainable. The other memory is of the Italian militiamen who shook my hand in the guardroom the day I joined the militia. I wrote about this man at the beginning of my book on the Spanish War, and do not want to repeat what I said there. When I remember, oh how vividly, his shabby uniform and fierce, pathetic, innocent face, the complex side issues of the war seem to fade away, and I see clearly that there was at any rate no doubt as to who was in the right. In spite of power politics and journalistic lying, the central issue of the war was the attempt of people like this to win the decent life which they knew to be their birthright. It is difficult to think of this particular man's probable end without several kinds of bitterness. Since I met him in the Lenin barracks, 
who was probably a Trotskyist or an anarchist, and in the peculiar conditions of our time. When people of that sort are not killed by the Gestapo, they are usually killed by the GPU. That does not affect the long-term issues. This man's face, which I saw only for a minute or two, remains with me as a sort of visual reminder of what the war was really about. He symbolises for me the flower of the European working class, harried by the police of all countries, the people who fill the mass graves of the Spanish battlefields and are now, to the tune of several millions, rotting in forced labour camps. When one thinks of all the people who support or have supported fascism, one stands amazed at their diversity. What a crew! Think of a programme which at any rate for a while could bring Hitler, Pétain, Montague Norman, Pavlich, William Randolph Hearst, Stryker, Buckman, Ezra Pound, Juan March, Cocteau, Thyssen, Father Coughlin, the Mufti of Jerusalem, Arnold Lunn, Antonescu, Antonescu, Spengler, Beverly Nichols, Lady Houston and Marinetti all into the same boat. But the clue is really very simple. They are all people with something to lose, or people who long for a hierarchical society and dread the prospect of a world of free and equal human beings. Behind all the ballyhoo that has talked about godless Russia and the materialism of the working class lies the simple intention of those with money or privileges to cling to them. Ditto, though it contains a partial truth, with all the talk about the worthlessness of social reconstruction not accompanied by a change of heart. The pious ones, from the Pope to the yogis of California, are great on the change of heart, much more reassuring from their point of view than a change in the economic system. Pétain attributes the fall of France to the common people's love of pleasure. One sees this in its right perspective if one stops to wonder how much pleasure the ordinary French peasants or working man's life would contain compared with Pétain's own. The damned impertinence of these politicians, priests, literary men and whatnot who lecture the working class socialist for his materialism. All that the working man demands is what these others would consider the indispensable minimum without which human life cannot be lived at all. Enough to eat, freedom from the haunting terror of unemployment, the knowledge that your children will get a fair chance, a bath once a day, clean linen reasonably often, a roof that doesn't leak, and short enough working hours to leave you with a little energy when the day is done. Not one of those who preach against materialism would consider life livable without these things. And how easily that minimum could be attained if we chose to set our minds to it for only 20 years. To raise the standard of living of the whole world to that of Britain would not be a greater undertaking than this war we are now fighting. I don't claim, and I don't know who does, that that would solve anything in itself. It is merely that privation and brute labour have to be abolished before the real problems of humanity can be tackled. The major problem of our time is the decay of the belief in personal immortality, and it cannot be dealt with while the average human being is either drudging like an ox or shivering in fear of the secret police. How right the working classes are in their materialism. How right they are to realise that the real belly comes before the soul, not in the scale of values, but in point of time. Understand that, and the long horror that we are enduring becomes at least intelligible. All the considerations that are likely to make one falter, the siren voices of a Pétain or of a Gandhi, 
the inescapable fact that in order to fight one has to degrade oneself. The equivocal moral position of Britain, with its democratic phrases and its coolie empire. The sinister development of Soviet Russia. The squalid farce of left-wing politics. All this fades away, and one sees only the struggle of the gradually awakening common people against the lords of property and their hired liars and bumsuckers. The question is very simple. Shall people like that Italian soldier be allowed to live the decent, fully human life, which is now technically achievable, or shan't they? Shall the common man be pushed back into the mud, or shall he not? I myself believe, perhaps on insufficient grounds, that the common man will win his fight sooner or later. But I want it to be sooner and not later, sometime within the next hundred years, say, and not sometime within the next ten thousand years. That was the real issue of the Spanish War, and of the present war, and perhaps of other wars yet to come. I never saw the Italian militiaman again, nor did I ever learn his name. It can be taken as quite certain that he is dead. Nearly two years later, when the war was visibly lost, I wrote these verses in his memory. The Italian soldier shook my hand beside the guardroom table, the strong hand and the subtle hand, whose palms are only able to meet within the sound of guns. But oh, what peace I knew then in gazing on his battered face, purer than any woman's. For the fly-blown words that make me spew still in his ears were holy, and he was born knowing what I had learned out of books and slowly. The treacherous guns had told their tale, and we both had bought it. But my gold brick was made of gold, oh, whoever would have thought it. Good luck go with you, Italian soldier, but luck is not for the brave. What would the world give back to you, always less than you gave? Between the shadow and the ghost, between the white and the red, between the bullet and the lie, where would you hide your head? For where is Manuel Gonzalez, and where is Pedro Aguilar, and where is Ramon Feneosa? The earthworms know where they are. Your name and your deeds were forgotten before your bones were dry, and the lie that slew you is buried under a deeper lie. But the thing that I saw in your face, no power can disinherit, no bomb that ever burst shatters the crystal spirit. And there we are. Again, there are many things that I could bore on at length about in those pages, but or about those pages rather, uh, about the essay as a whole and Orwell as a whole and Orwell and the Spanish Civil War, but I will spare you um, that uh, particular torture. Um, Yes, well, I hope you enjoyed it. As I say, it's a very interesting essay and quite an important one in terms of Orwell's intellectual uh, development. Um, and I hope you see uh, also very important in understanding some of the most important themes of his uh, animal farm and especially 1984. Uh, but I'll leave that for you to judge. Uh, rather than bore on about it myself. So thank you again and have a lovely rest of your day.